Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. In this episode, I'm joined by Adam Waits. Adam is a psychologist and a professor of management and organizations at Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. He is also an expert in whistleblowing, which is the topic that we get into today. He has written about it, taught about it, spoke about it at TEDx conferences. And in this conversation, we go pretty deep on whistleblowing, what it is, why it happens, and more importantly, why it doesn't happen all too often. And we talk about what leaders and organizations can do to create better environments where people are more likely to bring issues to the surface, not just the most egregious issues, the most immoral issues that are out there, but the little problems and how you can actually practice on dealing with little problems so that you're prepared when the big problems show up. This is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time. I think it is a key element that is playing a role in what we're seeing in the news in a negative way. I think the lack of whistleblowing or the lack of listening to people who are speaking up is a problem that, you know, luckily is coming to a head in a lot of ways now, but unfortunately, little too late. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I hope you get something out of it. I hope it creates good conversations within your organization. Here is Adam Waits. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I am very excited for this one, as I've told you, ad nauseum. I have been trying to find somebody to speak to this topic, and I had mentioned it to one of your colleagues, Lauren Norgren, who's been on the show twice, and he said, oh, I I, I got the guy for you. So hopefully today we are going to spend a lot of time talking about whistleblowing and about how organizations can be better at self-policing. Because I think that that, if you just look at all of the issues that have gone on and scandals that have gone on over the last couple of years, just time and time again, it just, I keep saying to myself, man, if these organizations could have just listened to the feedback earlier, like right at the beginning, we would have, it would have saved all of this headache and, and heartbreak and, and loss. So how did you come to study whistleblowing in the first place? Yeah, well, I found that it was a topic that was simply not being studied that much in psychology, which is something that you always hope for. Oh, there's a topic that's interesting and it's not being studied in my field. So my background is in social psychology. And I found that this was an issue that people in the world of criminology were studying, people in economics are studying, people in the legal world were studying uh, a little bit in organizational theory, organizational behavior a little bit, but in terms of just the psychology of why would someone choose to blow the whistle or not, I didn't see much research going on. And I think the first time that this topic crossed my mind was I was listening to some news report about a kid that was shot in Chicago. And as he was dying, the police came over to him and you know, asked if he had any information about what happened. And the kid, I think it was the kid, uh, said something like, I know who did this, but I'll never tell you. And so I found that that was really interesting that even on this person's you know, 
essentially their deathbed, they were not willing to blow the whistle to the authorities. And then I started thinking about, well, what types of situations engender this type of attitude? You know, basically don't tell, don't snitch, don't tattle, don't blow the whistle. And it seemed that this would generalize outside of closely knit groups and neighborhoods to closely knit organizations, organizations where there's a real culture of let's stick together, let's not blow the whistle, even if that could potentially benefit us in an instrumental way. And so this might seem like a a dumb question, but how do you define whistleblowing? No, I think it's a really good question because there's a lot of ambiguity on this. I'm typically thinking about a particular type of reporting. So the definition we like to use is reporting the unethical behavior of another person to an authority. And then, you know, if you want to get in the weeds a little bit, people will differ between internal whistleblowing and external whistleblowing. Internal whistleblowing would be telling someone in a position of authority within your organization. External whistleblowing would be going outside of the organization, telling the media, telling the the government, you know, the SEC, telling the police about the violation. But, you know, and we study both of these things. But you know, in general, it's just reporting the unethical behavior of another person to an authority. And I have a bunch of follow-up questions on what you just said, but I'm going to put a pin in those for later. And I want to sort of, I want to put some building blocks together on the topic. So you had mentioned first that you got into this because of an interest on why somebody wouldn't blow the whistle. So let's start there. Like, why don't people report? this type of bad behavior. I mean, it seems like if you, especially in a business, if you see somebody doing something unethical or amoral, or whatever, it would seem natural on paper to go out and report that or, you know, bring it to HR, or do something about it. But why, why don't people report this stuff? Mm-hmm. Right. So you'd get a different answer if you were talking to an economist, because an economist would think about incentives. And, you know, we could talk about this in a little bit. Economists might say, well, there's no incentive to do so. And and if anything, people are disincentivized to blow the whistle because you often see people getting punished as a result of blowing the whistle. Although there's some ambiguity in terms of how much people actually suffer from blowing the whistle. As a psychologist, I'm interested in the psychological causes. So our very first studies looked at something very simple as to why people don't blow the whistle, which is that we have sort of competing moral principles that bounce around in our head. And you know, depending on who you ask, people will say, well, everyone has sort of five fundamental moral principles or maybe six. And at least two of those principles tend to be in conflict with each other. So one moral principle that all humans walk around with that predicts unwillingness to blow the whistle is the desire for loyalty, to be a loyal group member, to be a loyal citizen, to be good to our own groups. And if we all walk around with this principle in our head, then it becomes pretty clear that if we see someone from our own group err or do something unethical, this drive for loyalty is going to curb our desire to blow the whistle. And then on the flip side, another moral principle we all care about 
universally is justice, justice and fairness, which I sort of use interchangeably. We want to live in a fair and just world, which means we want unethical behavior to be punished. And so to the extent that that moral principle is top of mind, or that's the one that we are prioritizing over loyalty, that's going to drive the decision to blow the whistle. But in terms of your question, why would we ever not blow the whistle? It's because this loyalty principle looms largely in our minds. So you find that most people are not blowing the whistle because they have an overwhelming sense of loyalty to either the person or the group. At the psychological level, yes, that's basically what we find that this desire to be, you know, a good group member means we don't even call out our own people because that might be seen as disloyal. So to the extent that people are not blowing the whistle, we find that this loyalty principle plays a large role. And can you talk to the suffering that you see from whistleblowing? I know you said there's some ambiguity there, but I think that'd be interesting because on the one hand, I get the loyalty piece, but on the other hand, you know, you kind of touched on the fear piece and I, you know, I, I could see situations where it would be very much fear or very much loyalty. And then there's probably a huge spectrum in the middle, but can you talk to just like what the reality is that people face when they whistleblow? Yeah, and this is a little bit hard to study because, you know, how would you quantify suffering as a result of blowing the whistle or how would you quantify revenge? Well, you know, one of the few studies to do this from a few years ago was a study from some economists that looked at what happens to whistleblowers in the realm of kind of corporate financial malfeasance okay and and there you can actually you know study whistleblowers because these violations are are tracked and they're tracked by organizations by say the SEC and there what you find if i'm remembering correctly is a pretty significant chunk of people do face retaliation in one form or another in terms of their you know job responsibilities are altered or they're you know actually you know, fired in one way or another, they're blackballed out of the industry. You know, I think something like 50%, you know, we could look up that that number at a later point, but that's that's my recollection. So people who are blowing the whistle on financial fraud from this one very rigorous analysis seem to about half the time they're facing some sort of retaliation. But in other sort of national surveys from the United States and from the UK, when you just ask whistleblowers, you know, have you faced retaliation or something like that? Uh, numbers tend to be lower, more in the 25% range. And then, you know, there's a question of, well, what do people even have in mind when they're thinking about retaliation? So some people might be thinking about explicitly being blackballed, but other people might face retaliation in a more informal way. Like you're just cast out of the group, even though you're not necessarily fired. And so that's what I mean by there's ambiguity in terms of how much people actually face uh, suffering or you know, there's ambiguity in, in terms of how much people's fears are realistic or not. Although I would say that you know, any amount of retaliation, whether it's 25, 50% or just 10% of the time, you know, knowing that people are indeed punished for whistleblowing is going to generate a significant enough 
fear or disincentive to refrain from blowing the whistle. Sure. And it it seems natural that there would be some, at least, you know, even if just by the person who you whistle blew against, right? Like somebody's going to get pissed. And if they were doing something immoral, the, you know, chances are they're willing to do more things that are immoral and not own up to the behavior that they had in the first place. And so, you know, those types of people, I don't think behave well when they get confronted with their behavior. Absolutely. And a lot of times these are people in positions of power or people in positions of power over you. So that would raise another issue as to why people have this fear. Well, if I see my manager or my boss do something illegal or just unethical, they might take that out on me if I report them. Yeah. Well, and and it seems too like there would be a sliding scale on the severity of that just based on the organization that you are whistleblowing within. You know, you think about, was it the female tennis player, doubles tennis champion from China who talked about being sexually assaulted by a senior government official in the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, she faced some pretty severe repercussions because of that. And, you know, we'll never know what they actually were, but it was seemed pretty clear from the outside that there were some pretty severe repercussions for that. But, you know, she's going up against the Chinese Communist Party. There, there's They have a lot more power, a lot more control, and they exer- they have a history of exerting that control. Whereas, you know, your local nonprofit, you know, may not, they, they might be more receptive to that kind of a thing. Right. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting that even in, say, the United States, even in cases where people might bring up well-founded charges of sexual harassment or sexual assault, it's not like their life is wonderful, even if they win their court case or get, you know, proven to be accurate. You know, they face all sorts of repercussions, even if it isn't from the government, you know, just reputational backlash is large for these people as well. Yeah. I mean, I've read countless stories of people who speak out about the pastor of their church sexually assaulting them when they were a minor. There was a story about that a couple months ago. And the church turned against the person, even though it was very clear that this monster of a pastor took advantage of this, you know, poor young lady and she'd had to live with it all these years. And yet, you know, the organization, there was so much loyalty within the organization that they, they turned on her. Oh yeah. You know, it's interesting because we're talking about a lot of different domains. We're talking about going against the government, going against the church, going against, you know, your crew on the street, going against your organization. And this is what interests me about whistleblowing. The patterns are the same. So, you know, you're talking about going against the church. There's a high profile case of a whistleblower at General Motors, who I have my students read about, who this guy blew the whistle on the fact that the Chevy Cobalt had a defect in the uh, ignition system. And this guy, you know, was cast out of the company, even though, you know, to draw a parallel to the sexual assault case in the church. You know, this is a defect significant enough that it ended up killing people. And yet, you know, this guy, he was totally, his complaint ended up being completely legitimate, but it's not like he got his job back at General Motors. He was essentially 
pushed out of the company. So this is a pattern you see across these different domains, whether it's in the corporate world or elsewhere. All right. Before I get too depressed, because I was already kind of depressed coming into this conversation, let's talk about the flip side. With all this that we just talked about, why do people still step up? Why does anybody whistle? Yeah. Well, it's really because of this, you know, again, psychologically, it's this justice principle that we like to feel that we live in a just world. We like to see justice done. And so we do have a drive to, you know, if we spot something unethical, we have at least an initial inclination to do something about it, to see that injustice rectified. And so when you see people who blow the whistle, it's because, you know, they're, they want punishment to fit a crime. And what's interesting is a lot of high profile whistleblowers or, you know, whistleblowers who have kind of made the news for, you know, blowing the whistle on important organizations, whether that's the church or some massive company is anecdotally, a lot of times these people, sometimes they feel like they have a higher call, like maybe they're actually quite religious or even quite patriotic and, and they feel like they want to see more justice in the world. And so, you know, this is anecdotal, but I think a lot of these, uh, whistleblowers who go against the most powerful organizations on earth just have this really strong drive for justice. So there's there's two questions that come into my head. There's how do we prime people to speak up more often? And then there's how do we create organizations that respond better to these situations? And I it, it seems like it might be, you know, chicken or the egg on which one we want to tackle first, but which of those do you think we need to tackle first? And I'll let you answer those in any order that you want. Yeah. So to get people to speak up, we have not done any interventions on this, although I would like to test you know, the things that I'm about to say. It seems to me, you know, I have worked with companies to, to say, well, how could we craft our whistleblowing campaign better? And things like that. But in my view, the way to prime people to blow the whistle is to say, all right, look, I just told you that loyalty is going to drive people to refrain from blowing the whistle, and justice is going to drive people toward blowing the whistle. The intuitive idea would be, well, you just got to get people more focused on justice. But loyalty is never really going to go away. It's not like we're just going to forget about loyalty. And so what I would like to see it just in terms of messaging would be something more like, you know, here's what it means to be loyal. What it means to be loyal in our organization is we call each other out. We speak up when we see something. That's what it means to be a good citizen. That's a way of keeping our loyalty concerns intact while still making whistleblowing and loyalty compatible with each other. The other way to keep loyalty in the mix is to say, yeah, we want you to be loyal to the company, but you know, we also have a loyalty to society more broadly. And if you're seeing you know, us fudge the numbers on, say, carbon emissions, and we're actually polluting more than we say, part of being loyal is being a loyal citizen to the world as well. So sort of reframing loyalty in that way. You know, If I were to craft an individual message, how would you prime people or prime people in an organization to to speak up, I would focus it not just beating the hammer of justice, but 
saying, you know, here's what loyalty means. Loyalty is actually compatible with blowing the whistle. And then in terms of how would you design an organization to be more whistleblowing friendly here, you know, I'm, I'm sort of drawing from my mentor at University of Chicago, Nick Epley, who we've gone back and forth on designing teaching materials for, for teaching about whistleblowing to MBA students. There's sort of kind of three places where whistleblowing breaks down. And what I mean by a breakdown is, you know, yeah, why don't we get more companies being whistleblower friendly? The three places where whistleblowing breaks down in organizations are people failing to notice that you know some unethical behavior has occurred to begin with, people noticing an unethical behavior but not reporting it, and then people reporting the behavior, but the organization doesn't listen. And so there are things you can do that sort of at each of those three critical points to encourage whistleblowing across the organization. So, you know, the noticing problem, sort of phase one, is fairly simple. You know, there the solution is, well, let's make looking a priority. This doesn't mean that you're going to implement intensive surveillance on all employees, but simple things like checklists can go a long way. Like, well, have we done our due diligence? Does the ignition switch work? And not only does the main safety inspector have to sign off on that, but you know maybe the manager or the higher up has to sign off on that as well. So one is just people might not notice that there's any unethical behavior. So it's making looking a priority. That's as simple as just checklists, making these things top of mind. Then you know, the critical phase, uh, the second critical phase, well, people notice, but they don't report, you know, that's where you need to do a little bit more messaging around, hey, what we mean by being a good citizen here is we want you to speak up, okay? We actually want you to speak up. We want to remove the barriers of people feeling so fearful about speaking up. And then, you know, at the level of, well, maybe you get someone to speak up, but the organization doesn't listen. That really comes from leadership. And that really comes from, well, what kind of a culture do you want to create? And, you know, I think the examples of the most, I would say, whistleblower-friendly cultures are cultures where leaders are really serious about saying, hey, we want to hear bad news. Not just bad news about unethical behavior, but like if we're creating a product or a service that is kind of crappy. We want to hear about that. And so, you know, one example I use on this is Alibaba in their early days. I don't know how well this worked for them, or I don't know if they've uh, continued it since they, they went public a few years ago, but they had this internal internet platform called Aliway, where any employee could kind of voice any concern they had about, you know, anything that they felt could be improved. And in addition to just having a platform where people could speak up, you were actually rewarded with virtual sesame seeds, sort of as a token of good luck if you gave some sort of constructive criticism. So what does that do? You know, people weren't necessarily offering whistleblower complaints on that platform, but by having that in place, leadership is essentially saying, look, not only are are we willing to listen to bad news, but if you are constructive in voicing bad news, 
we're actually going to reward that a little bit with these, you know, virtual sesame seeds. So this is a little case study. I don't know how that played out, but that's the type of organization where I see something like that. And I'm saying, oh, this would convince me that if I report something, it's going to get listened to. Well, and that makes sense. One of the themes that has come up a lot on this show is getting your reps in. So whatever, whatever you're trying to get better at, you got to practice it. And I was thinking this earlier when we were talking about it, you know, we're talking about people who are blowing the whistle and we're talking about egregious examples of people doing very immoral behaviors, but there's a lot of inappropriate things that happen or issues that need to be brought to the surface, you know, problems that happen in daily business or daily interactions that also need to be voiced. And the more we get practice at voicing those and dealing with those and being open to critiquing ourselves and having other people critique us and taking feedback well and getting better, making changes in our own behavior, you know, the more we practice those skills, the more likely we are going to respond appropriately in a major situation. It would seem to me. Yeah. Well, I like the idea of practicing in general because whistleblowing is something that's emotionally fraught for all the reasons that we've talked about. And what do we know about practice is that practice of anything sort of takes the emotional punch out of the situation. You know, it's say you're nervous about negotiating, negotiating a new salary. Well, if you practice, guess what? That fear, that anxiety is going to dissipate because you've gotten yourself more comfortable with the things that you're going to say. Or say you are nervous about public speaking. Well, what do you do? Yeah, you get your reps in. You practice because all of a sudden, what seems like something that could threaten you on the spot, all of a sudden that becomes something that's very natural. You're very confident in it. And it's the same with blowing the whistle. We don't like to speak up because it's confrontational we're telling someone that they're wrong. We might hear that we're wrong. And so not that, you know, there's an easy way to practice blowing the whistle, but, you know, I think the most successful whistleblowers I know are those who have really done their due diligence. You know, they've talked to multiple people or or they've gotten all their ducks in a row. They've practiced what they're going to say when they blow the whistle. And, you know, maybe when we talk about getting our reps, what, what you're thinking about as well is just getting practice with hearing bad news or engaging in in constructive confrontation with people. I think, you know, in my experience, I'm very non-confrontational and that hasn't served me well. I've realized that, you know, avoiding conflict is not good for my relationship. So I'm trying to practice confrontation more and not in an aggressive way, but all I mean is not shying away from difficult conversations. Exactly. Picking up the phone, knocking on a door, et cetera. And that's so important. And you hear leaders all the time saying that, you know, they don't like conflict and that these types of critical conversations are hard. You know, if you can't share critical feedback with somebody who's underperforming, odds are you're not going to respond well when somebody comes in and talks about, you know, shares that somebody on the team has made inappropriate sexual advances. You know, like you don't just suddenly step up. You, what's the saying? You, we don't rise to the occasion, we fall to the level of our training. And I think 
having well thought out values, having well practiced values helps with what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just bet that there are countless people out there who were involved in and aware of these scandals who, after the fact, just live the rest of their lives with a pit in their stomach because they're good people who just hadn't practiced living up to their values enough. I think you're right. That that would actually be interesting to test as well, because you're either going to get people who are always going to regret, you know, I could have done more to prevent, you know, sexual assault or prevent the Chevy Cobalt going on the road and, you know, killing people, or, you know, I could have done more to prevent the BP oil spill. And on the other hand, you'd probably get some people who have rationalized that, well, really, there was nothing I could do about it. Or really, if I had spoken up, I wouldn't have gotten listened to. Or if I would have spoken up, I would have lost my job and I have a family to feed and things like that as well. So, you know, there are different ways that people make sense of these things, but none of them are good. If you had the chance to prevent harm and and you ended up not doing it, you're you're not going to feel very satisfied at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, this is uh, it's good reinforcement for me too to go out and and practice some of the stuff. I I tend to not like conflict as well, and there have been plenty of situations where I've walked away from conflict scenarios and said, "Man, I wish I'd handled that differently." So it's just a good good reminder to lean into that stuff. The other thing that I'll say, I've mentioned it on here before, is one of the best exercises that I've done is a couple of years ago, I just made the commitment to myself that as as much as I could, not perfect with this, but as much as I could, whenever I get feedback that makes me get angry or defensive, I try to sit with it for a second and say like, okay, what about this is true? And like, even if 90% of it isn't true, there's like something in there that's setting me off. That's making me behave this way or making me feel this way. That is probably true. And like I, there's a good scenario where I had, uh, my mom had posted something online. I thought it was inappropriate. I called her out on it in a very aggressive way. She was taken aback because it's not what she meant when she posted it. And she said, you know, look, I appreciate that, but like you handled this totally poorly. And I was so hot in the moment that I like couldn't see it, but I sat with that and I was like, okay, she she just came back at me in a way that like re-triggered me. I need to think about this. And I wound up calling her back and saying, look, I, I'm sorry. He, you know, here's how I felt, but here's, I, I handled that poorly in these ways. And here's what I did. And, you know, we had a great conversation about it, but man, was it hard to sit in that moment in a time where I thought she was wrong and go, nope, I was wrong. And like, the more that you do that and the more that I have done that, the easier it gets and the more likely I am to then like see somebody else's side when they come to me with feedback. So that's a long uh, sort of tangent, but I do think that practicing that kind of thing can be helpful for people to then be able to get feedback and go, okay, no, this, some, I don't need to be defensive in this moment. Oh, and I think that example is particularly challenging to do what you did because it's family. So whether it's your spouse or your parents, it's even harder, you know. So we already don't like to be wrong. 
We don't like to, to experience the feeling of being wrong. And we don't like to you know, do what you've been trying to practice, which is, all right, if I get negative feedback, what's the one piece of this that I could say, yeah, that, that's legitimate. Now, you know, having to do that when there's that additional relationship closeness component is even harder. But I think it's the key to being a better decision maker. And so it's something I try to practice as well. You know, we talk a lot about decision-making biases that lead people astray. And if I could eliminate one decision-making bias from my own brain, it would be the confirmation bias, which is the bias to seek out information that confirms our initial assumptions. And, you know, in the context of your example or the examples that we're talking about, our expectations, we walk around with expectations that we're pretty much in the right. You know, all of us do this. We think we're right most of the time. And so what do we do? Well, if we think we're on the right path, we will seek out information that confirms it and faced with disconfirming information, we'll reject it. You know, we'll say, well, you're just being biased. You're just being lazy. You don't know the whole story. You're being naive. And so actively going against that confirmation bias to the most extreme version of this is doing the exact opposite, seeking out ways that you might be wrong. I think that would be the number one way that I or anyone else could improve your decision-making. It doesn't mean you know, seeking out ways that you might be wrong until you find you might be wrong, but it's doing your due diligence to really say, okay, yeah, whether it's you getting feedback or in the absence of feedback, seeking it out. One, you might find ways that, that you were in the wrong. But two, if you don't find it, you can at least say, okay, I did my due diligence and then I know I'm in the right. And so I think what you're talking about, getting practice in accepting bad news, bad feedback, disconfirming information, it's just going to make you wiser overall. But again, I'm not enlightened. It's you know, literally probably the hardest thing for me to do. So yeah, again, it's getting these reps in. Yeah. It's always a challenge. It's always a challenge. So back to whistleblowing for a second, because we talked about, you know, we've talked a lot about this and how tough it can be, but why people do it. Is there anything that people can do to improve their odds of success if they are seeing something and they, and they feel like they do want to speak up? Mm-hmm. There's a few things, which is The first one is the hardest. So I wrote a case study about a woman at uh, Citibank who blew the whistle on extensive mortgage fraud, you know, around the time of the financial crisis, actually, just before and after even once Citibank was bailed out, they were still, you know, engaged in all these fraudulent practices around mortgages. And she was one of the few people ever to actually win one of these whistleblowing bounties granted by the SEC, you know, $31 million. And so this was not what she was seeking, by the way. She was starting, she was filing these whistleblower complaints before the bounty system was even in place. I think bounty system came in with Dodd-Frank around 2010. But anyway, what made her successful is she had meticulous notes of, you know, every email, every Excel file, her evidence was bulletproof. And, you know, oftentimes lawyers don't necessarily want to take on these clients because you're going up against a Citibank. Citibank's lawyers are going to crush you. 
But her notes, her evidence was so meticulous, it really benefited her. So, you know, step one is having all your I's dotted and your, your T's crossed. But that might be challenging. You know, may, maybe there aren't any notes to speak of. Maybe there isn't a paper trail. So I think at a more at a broader level, one of the things that I think about is knowing who to talk to, knowing who the right authority figure is. And I don't know how to solve this problem, but something I read very recently is that people have extremely low trust in HR departments right now. Okay. And that might resonate with you or people who might be listening. One of the reasons why people have low trust in HR departments is they feel that HR is going to act on behalf of the company and not the person going to HR. And so, you know, why am I, I saying this? I'm saying it because we need to know, even if there's some sort of formal you know, department in our own organizations, are is this the are these the people that are really going to be able to help me with my problem? Or, you know, or is it my direct supervisor? Is it someone above them? So really thinking out who is the right person to talk to. And then the third thing I would offer is just kind of a broad suggestion is nobody likes to hear a whistleblower complaint, particularly people who might be implicated in the unethical behavior. So can you give people an opportunity to save face, you know, even if it's sort of cosmetic. So saying, look, you might not have noticed this, but, you know, under your watch, we've been committing X, Y, and Z violations. Now, I know you probably have no idea this was going on, but I've been noticing it. Is there a way that we can bring this to, you know, the powers that be so we know that you're in the loop, it's not your responsibility, but we have been engaged in, you know, systematic malfeasance one way or another. You know, I'm just making this up on the spot, but but it seems like in that example, like you have to go, you have to go high enough that there's some pl- at least plausible deniability, so that you can motivate them to then act, right? Right, right, yeah. Because I don't really occupy many leadership positions these days, but I happen to be the current chair of my department at Kellogg. And so people do bring issues to me. And because I study this stuff and try to practice what I, I preach, I act very quickly. If someone says, hey, you know, you might want to check on so-and-so, I think there's some bad behavior over here or there. But I've been pretty free of hearing any any complaints. We have a pretty strong department. But to the extent I ever hear this, my first inclination might be well, I don't want to look into that. That's my friend. That's my colleague. That's our department, you know, whatever the case may be. And to the extent that someone can even ease my concern over that, you know, I'm going to overcome that initial, I don't want to look into that quicker, even though, you know, I I always get to that point after a few hours, but maybe it isn't in a few seconds. There's an important point here too. And I, I bring this up when I, have guests on and we talk about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And like those conversations can be so emotionally charged. And there's a group of people out there who say, you know, well, we don't necessarily need to listen to the straight white male because they've always been listened to. We need to listen to everybody else. 
And my argument is always, well, if we want change, you can't look at the majority or the current group that's there and ignore them from the conversation. So I get, I get the inclination to do that behavior, but I don't know that that's the most productive behavior. And I see something similar to that with what we're talking about here, where it's like, well, the person who's reporting this shouldn't have to make the person who's in charge of this bad behavior feel better about the bad behavior. Fair. But if we want it to be successful, that is a good strategy to making it more likely that that person is going to do something versus dig in and get defensive or find a way to get out of the situation. So it's it's a tough spot because I could see somebody coming in and be like, no, like, I just like I need to speak truth to power and I need to put everybody in their place because they deserve it. But, you know, again, if you're coming from a place of justice and they probably do. But again, is that going to be effective? Is it actually going to get the outcome that you want? So that it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And so I'm just responding to the question, how do you be an effective whistleblower? Right. Yeah. It is certainly not the onus of the uh, whistleblower to make the person in power feel good. But, you know, what's going to get the complaint heard that, you know, might save lives or end up producing less suffering or less pollution or whatever the case may be, it is doing a little bit of this. If there are ways to do it, it could be a strategy. Yeah, I, I get that. I don't think we need to let people off the hook. I'm just saying I could see somebody being like, well, wait, Hold on. Yeah. Or here's another more concrete example. We used to, sometimes I teach this case from 1970 about BF Goodrich that was making uh, brake pads for the Air Force. And some people noticed that the brake pads were just terrible and were going to actually result in disaster because, you know, there was some problem with the weight or the dimensions of the brake pads, long story short. And so, Raising this issue was really tough. The senior management didn't want to hear from the lowly engineers, hey, there's a problem with the brake pads because senior management wanted to keep this contract with the military. And they had promised that we would produce these particular, this particular equipment, et cetera. And so when we think about, well, you know, how could the whistleblower have been more effective? One of the things we say is, well, what if the engineers said this? Look. The current brake pads aren't working, but we've begun already working on an alternative design. You know, that kind of assuages the concerns that you know people in power might have of, oh, well, if we change course now or admit that we're making a faulty product, we're going to lose this contract. It's another way of letting people save face. Like, hey, we've already got an alternative in the work, so you don't have to worry about starting from scratch. You know, there's a variety of ways to do this. Is, is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. And just to be thoughtful about what your options are as you frame up these conversations, I think it's a good point. How do we as leaders and, and organizations get better at protecting whistleblowers? And I mean, I guess this could be true for colleagues or leaders of organizations. You know, what what are the things that we can do, even if it's not coming to us? Is there anything that we can do to foster these types of environments in a better way and protect these people better? Well, the problem is talk is cheap because a lot of people, I would say CEOs would say, 
you can always come to me or I'm, I'm the straight talk CEO or I want to hear X, Y, and Z if there's bad news. And in practice, we know that that's not the case. Uh, you know, people are, if anything, rewarded for telling the CEO good news. So if you can, one, actually walk that walk, it's going to set an example. But then two, when you walk the walk, publicize the example to let everyone know that this isn't just hot air. You know, We had a situation, someone came to me, and I immediately took their concerns to heart. Another way of kind of showing that you walk the walk is how much do you actually care about people who are not in positions of power, okay? Whether that's marginalized groups based on you know, gender, race, disability, et cetera, people on your staff that you know, aren't high-ranking staff, people lower in the hierarchy. If people see that you are someone as a leader who cares about you know, individuals in the organization who lack power, whether that's societal power or organizational power, they're also going to feel like, okay, this is a place where people who do something dangerous, like voicing a whistleblower complaint, are going to be protected. So I think it's really about setting examples and then publicizing those examples so people know, people have evidence that you know if I speak up, I'm not going to get kicked out. Yeah. And I'll reiterate here the point you made earlier about defining what loyalty means and actually setting that for people. I think that's a good a good lesson here too for creating a better environment. I really like that piece of feedback because yeah, loyalty gets misconstrued often. Yes. Yes. Good. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is really important when it comes to whistleblowing? You know, we've touched on all the the major points. I mean, one thing one point that I make a lot when I talk about this stuff is that there's a misconception about whistleblowers that they're basically doing it for some self-serving reason, that they're doing it to protect their own hide, or they're doing it for you know the promise of a monetary reward. And we find in our work that people mostly blow the whistle just out of the desire to reduce harm in the world and to you know seek justice. And so I think that that might be one message I want to get out there that most whistleblowers are are doing things not for self-serving reasons, but more for altruistic reasons and moral reasons. You know, that's a that's a good comment and brings up one more question which is have you looked at any data around the percent of people who whistleblow I'll say erroneously or where you know where they lie about it and they're planning a false flag against a person or an organization versus the number of people who actually come forward with honest true accounts. No, you know I, I would like to look at that. The only data I know of and this isn't systematic data but it's sort of anecdotal data is after I think Sarbanes-Oxley passed one of the stipulations was that all publicly traded companies had to have a whistleblower uh, hotline basically available. And what we know from those whistleblower hotlines is that they were completely useless. People did not feel more comfortable voicing complaints. People didn't trust that the hotlines were going to be anonymous. They didn't trust that they were actually going to be listened to. 
And what you hear a lot, or what I heard a lot when I asked people about why these hotlines weren't effective, is that what people ended up using them for was um, not necessarily for false complaints, but more for things like blowing off steam or maybe, you know, Com- just complaining. Yeah, grievances, grievances against a colleague that maybe weren't necessarily based in truth. So it's not to say that there's more kind of false alarms than true hits, but it is to say that, you know, those hotlines don't really get you what you want, which are true complaints. Yeah, but in terms of systematic data, looking at how frequently people do lie about these things, I wish I knew the answer. Yeah, it just, I think about it in terms of uh, sexual assault claims that come up. And there's just a tendency from, you know, obviously not everybody, but there is a tendency from a large group of people to start questioning, well, what was she doing? What was the scenario? You know, and they're kind of like looking for ways out of this uncomfortable conversation or, or uncomfortable reality. And yes, there are people who present false cases, and there are plenty of examples of that which is why we need to let every process play out. But there are plenty of others that have been swept under the rug where somebody was doing something egregious. And so, I, you know, there's, there is this weird dynamic where we tend to want to get out of that uncomfortable conversation, even if it doesn't affect us, right? Even if it's just something that's happening to an organization we're aware of or that's, you know, happening in pop culture. Yeah, well, well in the case of sexual assault, I would say even in the cases that are are you know have been clearly proven beyond the shadow of of a doubt there's always like you said going to be these questions of the victims and and that's why I think this is kind of more more of a general comment you know err on the side of believing in people treating people with good faith I would say in general and this is not you know true uh, this isn't necessarily specific to whistleblowing or you know sexual assault or anything like that our belief that people or our concern that people are leading us astray is totally miscalibrated with reality which is that most people tell the truth if you put your trust in people most of the time that trust is repaid but we can always think about oh that one time when someone was you know not telling the truth or you know, gave a false alarm or a false complaint. And those things are the minority. I think, you know, in general, society works better when we trust people, when we believe people, because if we don't, and that's, this is where we're heading, we just have a cloud of suspicion over all of our interactions and we can't coordinate or cooperate at all. What are you sick of talking about when it comes to whistleblowing? Not really sick of talking about anything when it comes to whistleblowing, I think I'm sick of my own research because uh, (laughs) I I find it a little boring at this point. I haven't been able to do the studies with organizations that I would like to do. So I guess the answer is uh, sick of talking about myself, but whistleblowing continues to fascinate me. Yeah, that's, that's my answer on that. What do you think people need to be talking more about when it comes to whistleblowing? When it comes to whistleblowing, I would like to see more around reversing the trends of companies that have gotten it wrong. So you'll note that I only gave, you know, I think one example. I like the Alibaba example of a company that put something in place that 
you know, did something to encourage people to speak up. But my sense is most companies don't operate that way, that implicitly or explicitly, there's this idea of don't rock the boat. And, you know, an explicit example that I like to use is, uh, you know, Sheryl Sandberg at, at Facebook CEO or Meta, although I'm not going to call them Meta. I think that was just a <laughs> strategic name change to kind of change the topic from all their kind of miscues over the past few years. And, you know, why have they had so many miscues? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one thing that's come up in some of the reporting and how Zuckerberg and Sandberg have handled various ethical trouble that Facebook's gotten in is that Sheryl Sandberg had a sign on her door, her conference room that said, good news only. Okay. And I don't, I don't mean to pick on her because you know she's done a lot of great things as well, but that to me feels like the norm in a lot of organizations. You know, there, it was explicitly stated, I only want to hear good news. But you know, in terms of what do I wish we were talking about more, it's how could we reverse that trend of organizations that just reward good news, only want to hear good news, aren't open, you know, leaders who aren't open to critical feedback. That's sort of a change that I would like to, to see. But, you know, it's rooted in something that we talked about, which is we hate to feel wrong. I imagine it's one of the top 10, top five least favored feelings that we want to experience wrongness. So of course we want to hear good news, but that's not going to make us wise or, or prosperous, I think. Amen. Well, Adam, I appreciate you coming on the show here today. This has been a great conversation. And, and again, just with all of the headlines that we've seen from Me Too and Harvey Weinstein to you know USA Gymnastics to the Catholic Church to, you know I don't know, countless, countless stories that we've read at this point, unfortunately. And I just think the more that leaders can understand what's going on in their own head when these complaints surface and and how we can be better prepared to deal with them, I think makes all organizations better. I I, I just one of my firm beliefs is that the strongest organizations are self policing organizations. You know, because you're you're taking care of the issues before anybody else has to step in and do it for you. And I just think that that's always the better way to go. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if anybody wants to do more research or, or find you or, and look up what you do, where can they do that? Yeah, just get in touch with me at adamwaits.com, A-D-A-M-W-A-Y-T-Z.com. And so my contact info is there. And uh, if you're willing to let me get some data from your organization or run an experiment in your organization, I would love to do so on whistleblowing or anything else. Fantastic. And to everybody still listening... Good luck out there. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it. <laughs>